Uh, 200 years ago, this Sunday, in fact, on the 23rd of February, the Cato Street Conspiracy was outwitted by one of the most repressive Tory governments this country has known. Led by a faded gentleman named Arthur Thistlewood, there he is, uh, in his prime, I should say, before he was uh, beaten up by police and so on, uh, its ambition was spectacular. There had been no such plot to destroy British government since Guy Fawkes' adventure in 1605. And it was the last such plot before the IRA's bombing <coughs> of Mrs Thatcher and her party in Brighton in 1984. Now, I focus on the story for two reasons. One is quite personal. I'm writing a book on the subject, as Richard said, and as I do so, I confirm my own belief that the historical imagination thrives on the devil that lies in the micro-historical detail in the small story. Of course, broad contexts matter. But my sense of those times, my sense also of London's back streets and alleys and its tenements, its taverns, my sense of the plights of the poor people who lived there in London in 1820, my sense even of the sheer walkability of the city in 1820, have all been hugely advanced by writing about the conspiracy minutely in its London context. The simple, unavoidable materiality, if you'll forgive the word, of some of the places and some of the artefacts I'll be showing you will, I hope, speak for themselves, for itself. Secondly, more to the argumentative point of this lecture, a small focused story like this one can still carry large implications, as every novelist would tell us. And the scenario I'll describe this evening may seem to belong to a remote and barbarous history. Yet the implication I draw attention to is how it resonates into our own, our own time. Although much has changed since 1820, modernised versions of the power, class and property relations that outwitted the conspirators then and the inequalities that angered them and moved them are still broadly in place. So it's unavoidable that the story will illuminate both continuities and discontinuities in what political terror now signifies for us all. Let me first remind you of the story. In 1975, uh, the London County Council added to its collection this photo uh, of a small workshop in the Mews Alley of Cato Street, just behind the Edgware Road, which was then on the western edge of London when it was built. It's now converted into a modern dwelling, but in the 1970s, we see it battered and bruised after nearly 200 years of use. It was first erected around 1905 as a gentleman's stable. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, as a gentleman's stable and coach house. And it stood in an unpaved lane of cottages uh, for labourers on the Paddington developments and new buildings in the canal. 
This shows what it looks like on the left in 1820, the alley itself, and what it looks like now. Still identifiably the same stable with a blue plaque on it, of course, but that white building is not uh, light years distant from the drawing uh, of 1820. In late 1819, the stable was let to an ex-soldier who said he wanted to keep his horse and cart there. He was actually looking for somewhere for himself and his friends to meet uh, before they ventured forth in hope of changing the course of history. And so it was that on the bitterly cold evening of 23rd of February 1820, 25 or so unemployed or underemployed craftsmen mainly, some of them very hungry, and led by Arthur Thistlewood, assembled in the st stable's hayloft in order to commit what we'd now call a terrorist atrocity. Several of the men knew a fair bit about violence. They'd all grown up in wartime, of course, and some had served in the army or the militias, including Thistlewood. So even though they wore sword belts made of string or leftover leather from ladies' shoes in their poverty, they did know how to hammer out pike heads. And they knew how to make hand grenades and fireballs, even if their techniques uh, in the recipe on the left have a kind of touching domesticity about them. Take two ounces of resin, two ounces of mutton suet, uh, suit, uh, two ounces of horse turpentine, melt together, add two ounces of saltpetre, make it into a ball with a fuse fixed into the centre, etc., etc. These things, along with swords and blunderbusses and pistols, they brought to the stable. What we witness in these artefacts is a cottage industry poising itself to do battle with the world's dominant military state. Did they have a chance? They even wrote out their advertisements by hand, uh, painfully by hand like this, and plastered a dozen of these things around the city. They invented naive secret codes like this one too, now in the Home Office papers, which is easily cracked, I can assure you. Anyway, after bread and cheese, the men were set to walk uh, a mile south through the dark streets to Lord Harraby's mansion in Grosvenor Square. Harraby was Lord President of the Privy Council, and the men understood that he was about to entertain the 12 members of the British Cabinet to their regular Cabinet dinner. The conspirators planned to burst into the house and murder not only the servants, but also the 12 men most hated by plebeian England. Castlery, Sidmouth, and Canning in particular, whose cheering deaths even caricaturists like George Cruikshank could look forward to as something deeply to be desired. James Ings, the butcher, uh, would hack off their heads, and these trophies would be stuck on those pike ends and paraded through the streets of London. Cannon would be stolen and deployed to seize the Bank of England, the Royal Exchange, and the Tower of London. A provisional government would be set up in the Manch mansion house. The northern districts and Scotland 
would rise up in support. They were only waiting for the queue, and a revolution would be launched that would emulate the French one of 1789. Well, of course, none of this happened. A government spy named George Edwards, George Edwards, had infiltrated the group and been reporting their every move for months past. This is the only image we've got of him, and it's probably no more trustworthy an image than he was himself trustworthy. Directed by the Bow Street Police and the Undersecretary at the Home Office, it had been Edwards who had inserted a false advertisement in a newspaper to announce the fictitious dinner in Harrowby's house. It was a trap, of course. Harrowby and the cabinet had no intention of dining in Grosvenor Square, but it was typical of something or other that nobody warned the cooks and the servants about the, this ploy until the danger was passed. So it was that just after eight o'clock that night, Bow Street police officers surrounded and raided the stable. A, a detachment of lifeguards who were supposed to help them got lost on the half-mile walk from Portman Square barracks and arrived after the hard work was done by the Bow Street men. And Cruikshank's iconic image, which we all know, I'm sure, staged this, what, what, what followed, as a kind of, of stereotyped melodrama. But he also claimed that this picture faithfully represented uh, the scene as the constables described it, and that the interior was correctly sketched on the spot, as indeed it was. Bullets whizzed, powder fizzed, uh, smoke billowed, and someone shouted, kill the bastards, kill the buggers, throw them down the stairs. Thistlewood in Congress in his top hat killed Officer Smithers with a single thrust of the sword. Uh, uh, Constable Wright was saved from the sword thrust by the thickness of his braces. Candles were extinguished and a rush of escaping men forced the constables back down the ladder. That night and next day, most were arrested, imprisoned and indicted for treason and murder. The conspiracy were over. The conspiracy was blown. For a while, the polite world was unnerved by it. Castlereagh began to carry loaded pistols at his own dinner table and employ policemen to guard the house, his house. Even the Duke of Wellington had a sword ready in his coach always to repel possible attacks down Piccadilly. Yet, through their provocateur, it was the government, of course, that had pushed the conspiracy onwards, even more than the conspirators had pushed it themselves. The Cato Street men were coolly manipulated and sacrificed to the interests of an insecure, frightened, and I think misgoverned aristocratic state. William Cobbett had noted long before that the government sighed for a plot. They had been sighing for a plot. Oh, how they sigh. They are working and slaving and fretting and stewing. They're sweating all over. They're absolutely pining and dying for a plot. And as Ings the butcher said before he was sentenced to death, I am sold as a bullock that is driven into Smithfield Market 
Depend upon it, gentlemen, I am sold like a bullock driven to Smithfield Market. The Cruikshank crank, uh, sorry, the Cruikshank print of the ministers and judges dancing around the conspirators' decapitated heads while Edwards fiddled the tune on the hillside show that the rest of the world knew the truth of the matter as well. Dance away, my friend, says Edwards on the hill. I have been the cause of all this fun by your help and money, Edwards the instigator. Now, of course, forcing troublemakers to overreach and expose themselves to a well-controlled prosecution is a timeless government manoeuvre. And sure enough, the Cato Street, uh, the Cato Street uh, arrests the four offered government a trump card, trump card for the coming election. Uh, the trials would expunge the stain of the Peterloo massacre in Manchester in August 1819 by making it seem justified. They would justify the suspension of habeas corpus and the imposition of harsh punishments for, the, for, sedition, <coughs> for sedition and the punishments inflicted on the men uh, would be gruesome enough to end fantasies about a British revolution for a century, as indeed, more or less, they did. What followed in April, then, was a series of skillfully manoeuvred trials for murder and treason. The Crown spent five or six weeks preparing for them. It marshaled 160 witnesses, it packed its juries, and it ungently persuaded several of the conspirators to turn King's evidence. At the same time, it made sure that defence counsel uh, was appointed a single day before the trials began, so that, as a result, far more evidence was heard from the prosecution than from the defence. And there was a lot of evidence to listen to, because in an age when... Death sentences at the Old Bailey were sometimes delivered after five-minute trials. The Cato Street trials lasted two weeks, and the account published in the state trials amounts to 350,000 words, verbatim, question and answer evidence. At last, ten of the conspirators were sentenced to traitors' deaths in the old-fashioned way. They were to be taken from the jail from whence you came, to be drawn on a hurdle to a place of execution, and there to be hanged by the neck until dead. And afterwards your heads shall be severed from your bodies, and your bodies divided into four quarters to be disposed of as His Majesty thinks fit. This is Abram Wyville's moving depiction of Thistlewood, sketched and then etched uh, in the dock as he listened to his fate. A haunting picture indeed. In the event, five of the men had their sentences commuted for life to Australia, uh, to transportation for life to Australia, and happily one of them became the chief constable of Bathurst. But <laughs> on Monday the 1st of May, 1820, Thistlewood and four of his fellows, the two shoemakers, Brunt and Tid, the butcher, James Ings, and William Davidson, 
the Jamaican-born cabinet maker, everyone called the Man of Colour, were hanged and decapitated outside Newgate Prison before a crowd allegedly of 100,000 people. Surrounded by constables and mounted cavalry, the crowd hissed and shouted murder at the sheriff and the hangman and cried out for Edward's head as well. Popular depictions of the execution were stereotyped. The most effective, perhaps, was produced pretty well overnight by George Thompson's shop in Long Lane, just around the corner from here. It's pretty rough-hewn, uh, but it gives a sense of the crowd and the excitement and the soldiers and the gentlefolk on the rooftop, rooftops getting the best of the views. A cheaper and more bloodthirsty print uh, notoriously shows a masked man hacking off each head with a surgeon's knife after each one has hanged. The hangman holds up each dripping object to proclaim it the head of a traitor. The greatest of all depictions of these executions by the French romantic Jericho of all people. I'm going to leave tantalizingly to the end. <laughs> For some decades now, quartering had been remitted in the interest of civility, but the head still came off every so-called traitor. Uh, from Despard's body and those, that, the bodies of his six co-conspirators in 1803, uh, from the three leaders of the Pentridge Rising uh, in 1817 in Derbyshire. Here's the leader, one of them, Brandreth, poor chap. And again, from the three Scottish weavers who had led the so-called Scottish Rising in April 1820. <laughs> The Scots were the very last Britons to be decapitated. All the same, one has to say, doesn't one, so much for the civility and the sensibility of the age of Jane Austen. It's not difficult to explain the men's behaviour and the men's choices. The most immediate provocation, and I'll go quickly, was Peterloo. As we all know, at a peaceful reform meeting in St Peter's Field in Manchester, six months before Cato Street, uh, sabre-slashing yeoman cavalry and hussars and truncheon-wielding constables killed 16 unarmed men and women and a child and injured 670 more. Both the local magistrates and Lord Liverpool's government denied all culpability while the Prince Regent endorsed their reaction. Here, Cruikshank shows that deeply unloved man accepting loyal thanks from his toadies on the left, while the petitioners for a Peterloo inquiry on the right, he farts at and knocks them all over backwards. The anger the massacre provoked across the country makes Thistlewood's insane fury intelligible if not intelligent. It also delivered a conclusive message that no mere public assembly could defeat bullets and sabres and that faith in crowd protests therefore was misplaced and that only assassination would change things. Thistlewood said in court, high treason was committed against the people in Manchester 
but justice was closed against the mutilated, the maimed, and the friends of those who were indiscriminately massacred. The blood of the Manchester victims should be the watchword to our vengeance on their murderers. And John Brunt agreed. The circular letter to the magistrates approving of our violence was nothing but a thing sent out to instigate murder of those men in Manchester. And if a man murders my brother, I have a right to murder him. A larger catalyst, secondly, or was it thirdly, were radical traditions that had ancient and deep roots in the culture of London and the provinces. The antique notion uh, that Saxon liberties had been suppressed by the so-called Norman yoke, aristocracy in other words, was rekindled in the 1790s by the French example. The artisan radical London Corresponding Society steeped itself in the writings of Tom Paine, though government prosecutions for sedition and treason eventually silenced them. But when Thistlewood arrived in London from Lincolnshire in 1811 for the first time, he began mixing with the veterans who still used this language as well as with Irish revolutionaries. He joined the small but influential society of Spencian philanthropists that sustained the insurrectionary tradition throughout the Regency years. But he was no ideologue, I think. He was not a bookman. He never talked overtly about the redistribution of property or political rights. He repeat, his repeated denunciations of injustice and privilege were much more visceral and far more personally driven. Finally, of course, in these lists of causes were the era's vast political and economic provocations. Jane Austen's England was a deeply unlovely place for the common people, even for skilled men. You don't have to be on the political left today. You just have to read the romantic poets and the writers to know that inequalities then were grotesque, censorship of press and opinion was severe, and the deprivations endured by the poor were in some part willfully inflicted. After the peace of 1815, the financial and landowning classes, already fat from wartime demand, benefited further from the ending of wartime income tax, while the poor continued to pay heavy taxes on everything from candles and salt to soap and salt, uh, uh, malt, sorry, and most cruelly on bread thanks to the 1815 Corn Law. <coughs> Craftsmen suffered under the collapse of the apprenticeship controls that had long checked the influx of unskilled labour. Trade failures were worsened by falling demand, paper inflation, national debt. With mass demobilisation and the freezing winters of the Little Ice Age, beggars multiplied and poor rates escalated. The prison-like workhouse at the foot of St Martin's Lane uh, behind the National Gallery now, uh, took up twice the area of Newgate Prison and was almost as big as Leicester Square. The building of military barracks and prisons was a growth industry. London and the provincial towns were sprinkled with almost as many of these things newly built as they were with pilastered mansions. 
Finally, before we go to a more generalised discussion, a word or two about the men themselves. In view of these conditions I've listed, it will come as no surprise to us that the conspirators were a long way from being the lumpen sanskolot or the young tearaways uh, of conservative people's imaginings. Thistlewood was the son of comfortable tenant farmers in Lincolnshire, but the rest were mature craftsmen in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, married and with children. Uh, seven of the ten men who were hanged or transported had 26 dependent children uh, between them. Most were immigrants to London, but the intimacies of the tenement and the courtyard and craft clubs and taverns rooted them quite quickly. In Wyville's prison portraits... I'm sorry. In Wyville's prison portraits, none of them is caricatured as a monster. Uh, uh, none displays anger or madness. These are men you'd meet on the street. All are respectably dressed, even if in borrowed clothes, one suspects. The allegedly thuggish butcher Ings on the left here looks as mild as anyone else uh, one might pass on the street. And Wyville allows Thistlewood on the right a handsome profile. The men were literate, moreover, and their handwriting was well practised. Here is Butcher Ing's handwriting, uh, and the others were similar. His spelling is a bit awry. He, he spells, I ham, the second line, I ham a murdered man, uh, a, a cockney, cockneyism, I suppose, or countryism. Uh, and the others were similar in these long screeds they produced for the defence attorney Adolphus as a memento before they hanged. A curiously insensitive uh, matter, gift one might think to ask for. Uh, Tid was the least educated of them. His sad little message was, Sir, I am a very bad hand at writing. But even he didn't do badly. Most knew something about Magna Carta, Watt Tyler, and the, the freeborn Englishman. They read radical newspapers, and Thomas Spence and Tom Paine, and they went to Spencean debates in taverns across London. On the scaffold, they all refused religious ministrations, with the exception of the one-time Methodist uh, Black Davidson. The largest trade group consisted of under or unemployed shoemakers, each of them, to use their own idiom, down on their uppers. Indeed, had a revolution been achieved, it would have been a down-at-heel shoemakers revolution and shoemakers who would have swung it. The big thing the men had in common was uh, worklessness and deprivation, of course. Brunt and his son had walked to Paris and back to find work as shoemakers. They found it eventually in uh, Wellington's barracks in 1816 for several months. They were away so long that his poor wife was admitted to St Luke's Hospital for lunatics because she believed them to be dead. Butcher Ings had to send his family back home to Hampshire to avoid starvation. 
Most lived with their families in squalid one or two bedroom, not even bedroom, two room lodgings, uh, hovels as the police called them. They were all in debt and at least three knew the inside of debtors' prisons. The 33-year-old Scots shoemaker, unemployed, James Gilchrist, turned up at the Cato Street stable because he was starving and someone had told him that he would get food if he came. I had nothing to eat, he said to the judges, and none to help me. I went to the place at six o'clock at night and met four or five men I did not know. By this stage, he is weeping copious tears. I borrowed a halfpenny and bought some bread at a shop. I followed them in, sir, not knowing what I was going about. And when I went upstairs, in a very little time, came in bread and cheese. I took an old sword and hacked it down. The men came round seemingly as hungry as I was. And, extraordinarily enough, the court believed him, and he was the only one of the men who was to be freed. I'd like now to stand aside from the details of the story and reflect on some of its possible meanings for us. I have to say at once that uh, the Cato Street men were not the first terrorists, as I was once tempted to call them. As Richard Evans pointed out in his Provost Lecture uh, for 2018 on terrorism, Edmund Burke in 1795 had already referred to the Jacobins as those hellhounds called terrorists, as he condemned the reign of terror. Setting aside Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes and Co., the Civil War was in some sense a reign of terror. Irish insurgents were called terrorists in, the eight, in 1806, and English Jacobins like Colonel Despard, hanged and decapitated in 1803 for plotting to kill the king, anticipated the Cato Street men too. <coughs> so there's nothing new about this, but in the 1820 conspiracy, I think, we're not far distant from the modern idea's origins. Despite this, though, and despite the story's almost cinematic energy, most Britons today haven't heard of Cato Street. Those who have tend to register Cato Street as a phrase that is a shorthand signifier of something vaguely uh, nasty in the past, something connected with hacking heads off in the punishment. Peterloo has always been better known, with good reason. I think this is because the Cato Street men have been treated with contempt by historians both at both ends of the political spectrum. Conservative historians think of their story as underdog history at its, uh, at its most uh, pure, at its purest. Uh, at least the gunpowder plot was about God-fearing gentlemen, which is why they far prefer to write about it. In recent times, the Cato Street men have been written off as, quote, ruffianly gutter snipes, or elsewhere as psychopaths, driven by personal neuroses. We know the language. One of the latest books in this territory refers comfortably to Thistlewood and his band of feckless, absurdly inefficient co-conspirators. The left haven't been keen on them either. This is partly because the conspirators failed miserably and were 
foolish enough to be duped by a spy, of course. But it's also because the conspiracy led nowhere. By that I mean it has no place in the narratives that once animated social historians in this country about the onward and upward march of labour or about the making of the English working class. It seems to belong to the dustbin of history, so pathetic as it was. Well, I repeat that there are still large satisfactions to be had from getting up close and personal to past people and habitats, habitats uh, regardless of their significance or otherwise for a progressive narrative. But more to the point now, let's turn to the bigger question. This connects with the illusion we may have nowadays about the conspiracy's seeming modernity. And another question, how, if at all, we're to judge these men, violent and desperate as they were. Now, Richard, or forgive me if I tread on some of his territory from 18 months ago, but in one definition, I have to say, a terrorist is a member of a secret organisation which uses violence and intimidation against the government or its, in, or its subjects to advance its own political or religious aims. In this sense, it's not difficult to regard Thistlewood and his men as terrorist prototypes. Two years ago, one Naimur Zachariah Rahman, aged 20, from North London, was jailed for 30 years <coughs> for planning to bomb down Downing Street's security gate to storm the front door of number 10 with a pepper spray and to kill Mrs May with a knife to take her head off here, as he said. In his witness ambition, as in hundreds of other cases, we could think of Cato Street seems to rise again. And there's a case, of course, uh, last night in Germany and again in uh, a, a mosque this morning, I think. Uh, someone stormed in. Anyway, parallels between past and present suggest themselves at every turn. For a start, Thistlewood and Rahman had a lot in common. They shared a sense of the world's vast injustice sharpened by Peterloo in the first case and by the West's Middle Eastern interventions in the second. Both were prepared to die in their, attack, in their attacks. Both were angry about their marginalisation and deprivation and both consorted narrowly with like-minded friends. Victims of their own and others' rhetoric and posing as their people's champion, they were gifted attitudinizers. And we have evidence of this in both cases. Thistlewood told recruits that he had been in three or four revolutions and had fought for the Jacobins, all lies. People like this seem to have uh, an explosive temper and a kind of historical narcissism. They're said to be unempathetic, uh, detached from reality and socially inadequate. Shared nationalist racial or religious commitments usually intensify these dispositions, though not, we note, in Thistlewood's case. The trouble is with this kind of profiling is that characteristics like these are widespread in common life, of course, and predict nothing. In other contexts, they may, be, may pass as virtues. 
So attempts to profile the extremist personalities invariably founder on numberless exceptions, as well as on our own projections and prejudices. And the modern state, needless to say, checks terror not through profiling, but through the surveillance, infiltration and manipulation of disaffected networks and the exemplary punishment of transgressors, as Cato Street men well know, knew. That said, there is arguably a stronger trait that extremists did commonly share and do commonly share. That is the innocence of ignorance. Some modern terrorist successes have been appalling and deadly. deadly. We, li we live with them almost, almost daily. As I say, last night, 11 people were killed in a German town. All the same, it's a bleak consolation, but it is a consolation that in the West, failures have outnumbered successes. Most perpetrators have been innocent of the ways in which advanced polities operate. Like Thistlewood, they have little sense of the surveillance powers that oppose them and have been less skilled at clandestine organisation than the governments are. Nor have they known quite what to do after their attacks should they survive them. Butcher Ings was going to head a provisional government in the mansion house, but nobody had thought how to get rid of the king, let alone the army. Would-be terrorists' ignorance and incompetence so far gives the state its best advantages over them. But now, what about the differences? Social scientists always try to elide difference and concentrate on similarity, but to historians, difference will always be the most interesting. The closer you get to the Cato Street men, the more obvious it becomes that historical time matters. Let me list the obvious. First, the Cato Street failure pretty well ended English revolutionary fantasies for nearly a century, while Islamist or righteous failure have not ended their fantasies. Secondly, Neither the conspirators nor the Chartists nor other 19th century British insurrectionists could anticipate the tactics later adopted by Republicans, Islamists or the extreme right. The uses of tactical cruelty did not occur to them. The spreading of terror, I mean, by random killing in order to win publicity and or salvation. The delivery of shock and awe to immobilise like-minded opinion and or to cow the others. They didn't think of the lone wolf attack either, or suicide bombing. The first was doubtless inhibited in 1820, and indeed in the 19th century, by the sense of collectivity that necessarily suffused, suffused subversion in past times. The last suicide bombing was doubtless inhibited by the unexamined fantasy that the dead body's integrity <coughs> sorry, um, uh, was a condition of resurrection. So it was in Britain that the physical force recommended by some charters in the 1840s aimed at soldiers and civilians and, not, and constables rather than civilians. And although the, although the Irish Fenian bomb was placed against the wall of Clerkenwell Jail in 1867 and killed 12 people and injured more, 
It was meant only to free two Athenians from the prison itself. It was long after Cato Street that European anarchists and the Zionist Irgun began to attack innocent uh, uh, targets at random in peacetime. France saw the first anarchist killing in 1894. The Irgun began bombing Palestinian Arabs in 1938. An anarchist bomb did kill one and injure 60 in London in 1897, but it was only in 1939-40, and again after 1972, that Irish Republicans brought random bombing to mainland civilians with deadly effect. None of these adventures was foreshadowed in Regency England. Nor thirdly were the Cato Street men offended by uh, sorry, prompted by offended religious, ethnic, or patriotic identity. I must skip some. And then we come to their main distinction, <coughs> the main difference. Ultra-radicalism in the Cato Street era did have religious roots, but its expression was secular, enlightened, and rationalist. It had its mythologies, but they were historical mythologies. I am a descendant of the ancient Britons, said Shoemaker Brunt. Albion is in the chains of slavery, says Thistlewood. And in their own defence, both Davison and Ings the Butcher uh, cited Magna Carta. But in London, more probably uh, than uh, in the provinces, ultra-radicalism was chiefly nurtured in tavern clubs rather than in chapels and in quest for trade solidarity, uh, political rights and economic justice. One therefore has to wonder, at the end of all these considerations, whether our best response to the Cato Street men should not be judgmental but compassionate and pitying, however misguided they were, and even if they did kill a policeman and would have killed many more. I want to end now by showing you an artwork, Jericho's extraordinary drawing, <coughs> still amazingly little known, although it's on my cover in the hanging tree, an artwork that suggests the value of this empathetic tradition I've just recommended. It's this ink and wash sketch of the Cato Street hanging by Jericho and pity, empathy and horror <coughs> seem to be its essence. Its subject has been contested. The Rouen Museum that holds the, holds the drawing catalogues it as le supplice, the torment or the agony, and dates at 1820 to 24. Only three men hang there, so the hesitation about identifying it more sharply is quite understandable, uh, because they were not only hanged, but also decapitated, and there's no hint of this in the drawing. All the same, you must trust me when I say I've gone to some lengths to establish that this does indeed depict the Cato Street executions for a few very brief reasons. We must remember, first of all, I think, 
that this is only a sketch for a larger work that was never begun. And that Jericho here wasn't reporting a real event, but merely playing with motifs in his own private notebook. That it was a partial view of the event is therefore neither here nor there. Secondly, extraordinarily, Jericho was in London at the time, and he was looking for a heroic subject to follow the raft of the Medusa. And thirdly, and most heart-stoppingly, he lodged, I find, and I have found, in and off the Edgware Road, a minute or two from Cato Street itself, while he was in London. And from countless conversations, as well as newspapers, he would have known the story intimately. Finally, this beetle-browed man, fixedly staring past the chaplain into the void, or, or at us, perhaps, it has to be Thistlewood, or a sketch of Thistlewood, and it's dressed like him. And it may be that Wyville's extraordinary engraving was a model. <coughs> Though the drawing... I'm sorry, my voice is going... Though the drawing is unfinished, in my view, it's one of the most extraordinary works of its age, because in all of art history, as I know it anyway, I'm not, not aware of any previous depiction of a hanging which is as uncompromising and intimate as this. <clears throat> in its pity and its horror, it has, I think, only one equivalent, and that is Goya's execution of the rebels on the 3rd of May, 1808, which was painted six years before Jericho's drawing. Be that as it may, Jericho here presents us with an icon of all people numbed by and incredulous at their imminent and dreadful endings, but also an icon that demonstrates the possibility in unimaginable circumstances of a defiant personal strength. Because in an age, indeed, when most felons were brought to the scaffold, weeping and urinating and defecating in terror, four of the five Cato Street men showed contempt for the justice being delivered and for its presiding deity. As one Whig radical MP reported, they died like heroes. Heroes. So I have some questions very quickly now to end with. Do the Cato, men, Cato Street men's impoverishment and ignorance and democratising intentions at all help excuse their rush to desperate and bloody violence? For what larger good, in whose name, did they believe they acted? and setting aside their motivations, was it an act of justice that five were hanged and decapitated for treason? Or are they indeed, as I hinted earlier, better seen as the deluded victims of a frightened and reactionary uh, aristocratic state? I'm sure we each answer those questions in our own way. Thank you. Thank you.